turn in your Bibles to the book of Ezra. If you have a Bible that's got the Old and the New Testament and you kind of open it up straight down the middle, you're probably somewhere near the end of the book of Psalms. If you back up before Psalms is Job, before Job is Esther, before Esther is Nehemiah, and before Nehemiah is Ezra. Turn to Ezra chapter 1. If you were here for our Lenten series, we did sort of a a mini history of redemption and we walked through the, the fall of man in Genesis 3 and then all the ways, all the things that God did to try and reconnect God and man with Abraham and Moses and the tabernacle and David and the the kingship and we ended with the exile when in the late 580s the Babylonians come in and they just level the city of Jerusalem and they destroy the temple the place where God's presence met with people they literally level it we're told they don't leave two stones standing on top of each other there is nothing but rocks just everywhere where there used to be a city. Anything they can burn, they burn. Anything made out of metal, they melt down and take it home. Anything made out of stone, they knock it down. And as I said, that that was our second second to the last one. The next one was Easter. I, I left us there saying this is, here we are in the exile. All that God has done has been undone. Everything God has tried to do, the tabernacle, the temple, the priesthood, the sacrifices, the the kingship, it's all gone. And that sets us up for Jesus. Every time we get involved in salvation, it doesn't work. God has to come do it himself. But obviously, if you think about, okay, in the late 580s BC, Jerusalem's leveled, and in 30 AD, Jesus is walking around Jerusalem, and he's teaching in the temple. Clearly, somewhere in there, things had to change. It got rebuilt. And so that's what we're going to look at for the next couple months. We're going to look at the rebuilding of the temple. Um, It happens in the the early 500s, the, the Jews come back out of exile. If you're in Ezra, I'm going to read just the first five verses of Ezra chapter 1, kind of as our intro to this. So this is how Ezra starts his story about after the exile, when the Jews came back and they rebuilt the temple. He says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors are now living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. So you heard how God begins this. We're in the late 530s now. It's about 40 years after the temple was destroyed. And the Persians have taken over. They've conquered the Babylonians. And they're letting the Jews go back. And specifically, they're saying, go back and rebuild your temple to your God. And we're told right in verse 1 that God is doing this. God is moving in the heart of the king. And then in verse 5, God is moving in the heart of the people. This is God's command. Go back and rebuild the temple. That's what he wants them to do. Now flip over a couple chapters to chapter three and let's look at what happened. This is a, we're doing a series on obedience and specifically the cost of obedience because building a temple is a big 
undertaking. It is a huge building. It was built back by Solomon, who was about the richest guy in the Middle East at the time. It took him years and years to do. It was mammoth and incredible, and they're going to try and rebuild this. It's going to cost them. And so we're going to talk over the next several weeks about the cost of obedience. What does it cost when we do what God says? So read along with me. I'm going to read chapter three of Ezra, and then the first five verses of chapter four. So this is when they've moved back to Jerusalem, and now they're getting ready to start building the temple. When the seventh month came, and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his associates, began to build the altar of God in Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God, despite their fear of the peoples around them. They built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord, as well as those brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters, and they gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre, that they would bring cedar logs by the sea from Lebanon to Joppa, as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. In In the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, the son of Josadak, and the rest of the people, the priests and the Levites, and all who had returned from the captivity to Jerusalem began the work. They appointed Levites 20 years old and older to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Joshua and his sons and brothers, and Kadmiel and his sons, descendants of Hodaviah, and the sons of Henadad and their sons and brothers, all the Levites joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments with their trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their place to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, he is good, his love towards Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish between the sound of the shouts of joy from the sounds of weeping, because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, let us help you build, because like you, we seek your God. We've been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the family of Israel answered, you have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the people around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and to make them afraid to go on building. They bribed the officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So they've come back. God's commanded them to rebuild the temple, and they're doing it. Did you notice in those first six verses how much detail Ezra gives us about what they're doing? He could have just said they rebuilt the altar and they started doing all the sacrifices, and then he could have moved on. 
but he details over and over again. They built the altar in accordance with what is written. They built the altar on its foundation. Now think about that. There's, there's nothing but rubble there. They, they know what the altar looks like because they have the law of God. We're told they're doing it in accordance with the law of Moses. And they find the foundation where the, tent, the, the altar was and they build a copy of it in the exact same place. They don't just throw up an altar. They find exactly where the original one was and they built another one just like it. And then we're told they offer the morning and the evening sacrifices. That's in the law. You have to do this. They're doing it. Then they celebrate the festival of tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. The festival of tabernacles or the festival of booths, it's called sometimes. It's a week long. It's Saturday to Saturday. And there's offerings that have to be given each day. And Ezra says they did that. They did exactly what they're supposed to do. Verse five, they did the regular burnt offerings, the new moon, which means the monthly, the monthly sacrifices, the sacrifices for the appointed sacred festivals, the free will offerings. Do you hear how careful he's being to tell us how they are doing exactly what they are supposed to be doing? He doesn't just say, oh yeah, they started, they, they, they built an altar and sacrificed. They did exactly what scripture says. God commanded them to go rebuild the temple and they are doing it. And then in verse seven, we get into them actually rebuilding the temple. They're giving money, they're paying. Remember, obedience costs. They're, they're paying for cedar. It says they start in the second month. And then down in verse 11, it talks about the, the Levites praising. He is good, his love towards Israel endures forever. Now, you, you know how I'm always harping on you to have a Bible reading plan and to be moving systematically through the scriptures. If you're doing that, if you've done that before, then these words should sound familiar. Because Ezra, who wrote Ezra, we think also wrote the books of Chronicles. And Second Chronicles is where he tells about Solomon building the temple. And it sounds just like this. Solomon paid people and he had logs, cedar logs, shipped down to, from Lebanon to build the temple. Cedar is one of the things he used in it. He started building in the second month. As he built, the Levites, the singers, stood around. Guess what they said? He is good. His love endures forever. Ezra's calling back to Solomon originally building the temple. They're doing very similar things to what Solomon did. They're rebuilding it, but they're rebuilding it the way it was built the first time. Do you hear all the ways he's telling us that the people are doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing? God has commanded them to rebuild the temple. They've gone, it's like three months to get from Babylon to, Ju to Jerusalem. This is not an inconsequential journey. The city's in ruins. They've got to make a life for themselves. This is a costly obedience for them, and they are doing it. They are doing it exactly as they are supposed to. They are rebuilding the temple like Solomon built it, which is what makes what happens next so poignant. This is what we're told. They finish laying the foundation and there's two responses. The first response, the end of verse 11, the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord. That, that, that good response. God commanded them to do this. They've begun the work. It's going well and they're excited. They're praising God. And verse 12, anyone who's over about 45 or 50 years old Anybody younger than that was born in captivity. They never saw Solomon's temple. But the temple was destroyed about 40 years before this. There's people in their 50s and 60s who've come back, 
who saw the original temple and they look at what they are building and they weep. Because, I mean, how, how many verses does Ezra detail to them actually building it? Cedar and stone. And the stone they're using is the rubble that's all around. You go back to Chronicles and you read, it takes chapters to detail Solomon building the temple. He used cedar, he used stone, he used cypress, he used oak, he used gold and silver and bronze and copper and diamonds and rubies and sapphire and topaz and turquoise and lapis and Solomon's temple was incredibly beautiful. They, they went to the quarry and they hew out specific pieces of rock for each specific place and they put it together. We're told people were always amazed when they went to watch them build the temple because it was silent. Because they did all the stonework back at the quarry. They fitted all the pieces back in the quarry and they shipped them to Jerusalem. It was like putting together a Lego. They just slid all the blocks in place. It was incredible. These guys, they're building out of the rubble that is scattered around them. And the people who saw the original temple, they weep. I am so grateful that the Bible doesn't skip those parts. Because you know, if we were writing this, we'd skip that part. <laughs> we'd tell the story, they, the king makes a proclamation, they come back, <clears throat> they start to build, they lay the foundation, they're being obedient, a great cheer goes up. And then we'd move on. We would skip the second response. Because brothers and sisters, when you obey, you are always going to see these two responses. This is the reality in the world we live in. That sometimes when you obey, there is a shout of joy. It goes so well. Everything, you're so grateful to God and everything is going so well. And sometimes when you obey, because remember, they are obeying. They are doing exactly what God said to do. We are told that over and over and over again in this passage. They are doing exactly what they are supposed to be doing. They are obeying to the letter of the law, exactly what they are supposed to be obeying. Sometimes it doesn't go well at all. You know, I've told you this story before, that when my boys moved out, Elizabeth and I suddenly found ourselves with a five-bedroom house and three people in it. You know, and Scripture says things like we've talked about the last few weeks. Be generous. To him who has much, much, if you're given much, much will be expected. You know, John, when John the Baptist has said, what must we do to be saved? He tells people, well, look, those of you that have two of something, why don't you share with somebody that has none of something? And so suddenly we have empty bedrooms. We're like, okay, what do we do with this? And we thought, well, we could downsize the bedrooms, but we decided instead to upsize the inhabitants. We just fill up the bedrooms. And so we invited a couple of young women from our church to, to come stay with us. They had to move out of their apartment. Like, hey, come stay with us. Stay for a month till you find another place. Stay for a year, whatever you like. And you've heard me say that I traded empty bedrooms for joy. Having them live with us was one of the best decisions Elizabeth and I have ever made in our lives. Abby still lives with us to this day, to our great delight, and Allison only moved out to marry my son. I traded a bedroom for a daughter-in-law I adore. Like, oh my gosh, a shout of joy to the Lord. Sometimes you obey, and it's like, wow, thank you, God. But when we lived in Mali, I tried, I, I did this exact same obedience. We went to an English-speaking fellowship, 
And so there were Africans from English-speaking countries, particularly Liberia and uh, Sierra Leone, which were at war at the time. And so there were English-speaking refugees at our church. And I got to know a young guy there named Darius, who was a guy, he's in his 20s. He and his wife and his one-year-old daughter had fled from his village and fled to another country because he didn't want to get sucked up by the rebels and, and made to fight. And so now he's living as a refugee in Mali. And so I had hired him to come over to my, my apartment and help me with some stuff. And we were having lunch and just talking. And I was asking him, well, you know, what would you do to support yourself if you could? And he's like, oh, I'd do what I did in Liberia. In Liberia, he had a food truck. Now, don't think our food trucks, right? Think West African food trucks. It's a cart. It's like, you know, the guys that sell ice cream out of their cart or maybe sell you a hot dog downtown or that kind of thing. He had a food cart. He was a chef. He would cook food at home. You know, he'd cook rice and beans or stew or, or something, pack it up, load it in his cart, take it out, and they'd have plastic utensils and metal and things, and, and he'd sell people lunch and dinner. He said, oh, there's a high school just two blocks from where I live, and there's no food anywhere near it. And there's no cafeterias in the schools there. You want to eat, you got to go out and buy it. It's like kids have to come out and, and walk for two or three blocks to find anything to eat. Oh man, I'd cook at home. I'd wheel my cart over. I'd set up next to that high school. I would make a killing. I could easily support myself selling food to those students because they're hungry when they come out. And, and I make good food cheap. And, and I asked around some African friends who were savvy and they were all like, Wow, that's a really good idea. He's right. I, it, like, there's no food anywhere near that school. That's crazy. Normally, somebody's brought food there. That's a, that's a great idea. So Darius and I went into business together. And I, you know, we, we went out and I bought him everything he needed to start this business. And we sat down and we planned it out and we worked out how much food he needed each week and how much money he'd make and how much he could save and how much he needed to buy the new food. And, and we talked about, you know, the realities of doing business, right? I was asking him like, okay, what could make this fail? Are you going to have to bribe policemen? Right? Are the police going to come and try and shut you down? Are you going to need to give something to the headmaster? Are you going to need to pay teachers or feed them? Like, what could make this fail? And we, we talked through all that and budgeted for all that and went out one Saturday morning to, to got a, tr- a pickup truck and went to the different markets and bought everything he needed so he could start. And he was going to, you know, get cranked up Monday when school came. A couple days later, some African friends of mine said to me, um, you should go see Darius. There have been some issues. Because I had called in some favors, right, with some friends to help me do this who knew where the best prices were and where you should go and where we could get good quality stuff. And so, so I had friends who knew this was going on. One of them's like, you need to go talk to him. And so I went and discovered that Saturday morning we had bought all this stuff. And Saturday afternoon, Darius had taken it back to the markets and sold all of it for half price. So I spent about $500, which he then turned into $250 because he had debts. He was a refugee. You know, he, he, he was living on charity and now he had money and so he needed to pay off those debts. Um, I would have been much better off giving him $250 and burning the other $250. Could have saved myself a lot of time and trouble. Um, and so I went back to him, just like, why? Why didn't you tell me that, that you'd have to pay these debts? Why didn't you tell me these people would come after you if you had money? Why didn't you tell me they wouldn't wait for you to make money? Like, Why? Sometimes it's joy. Sometimes obedience leads to joy. Wow, I didn't sleep that night. There was weeping. 
what, 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 what had I done? <laughs> what good had I accomplished here? Why did we take all this time and I call in all these favors and everything? Needless to say, my relationship with Darius was not good after that. Why? Like, what, what, why, God? Why did this fail so spectacularly? Brothers and sisters, this is part of the reality of obedience. Sometimes you have exactly what it says here. You have shouts of joy. And sometimes you have exactly what it says here. You have sorrow. And you have grief and you have weeping because it doesn't go at all like you thought it was. And look what happens next. Verse one of chapter four, the enemies. We're told right at the beginning that these guys who are coming, they are the enemies of the Jews. And what do they say when they come? Let us help. We want what you want. Now we know that's a lie. They are not friends. They are not allies. They are enemies. We are told that at the beginning of the story. And these guys know it too. But what do you do? It's a no-win situation. What happens if if someone, imagine you're in charge of lemonade days, right? And a group comes that hates lemonade days and wants to get rid of it, thinks it is annoying and loud and ruins the park. And you're the administrator for lemonade days and you're looking for volunteers. And they come and they say, oh, let us help you. What is going to happen if you let people who hate it be in charge of things? You know they are going to thwart you and harm it at every turn. Or you say no, and then what? Well, then you just have outright hostility. Because they're your enemies. They don't want you to succeed. The Jews go for no. Right? They're like, they know who these guys are. It's like, no, we're not going to let you help. And so they get outright hostility. These people bribe the local officials. Right? They thwart it from the reign of Cyrus, from Cyrus down to Darius. He doesn't mention the two kings in between that it's thwarted through. Darius is three kings later. It's 17 years. God commands the Israelites to go rebuild his temple, they obey. They obey fully, they obey completely. They do everything they are supposed to do. And then it's shut down. The government forcibly shuts them down for 17 years. Why? Why did God ask them to do this? Why did God ask them to go obey when he was not going to protect them. And he was not going to allow it to prosper. Because 17 years from now, he will. I mean, wow, you will see in the story dramatically. In 17 years from now, the opinion of the Persian government is going to make a complete 180. One day, it's going to be, do not allow them to do this. And the next day, it's going to flip And they are going to pay the Jews to rebuild the temple. And they're going to threaten all the people around them with death, actually being impaled on a pole if they prevent the Jews from rebuilding the temple. God is just going to completely reverse it. Why didn't he reverse it today? Why did he send them there, command them to obey? They obeyed, and then they're thwarted. And he doesn't do anything. He doesn't stop it. Why does he do that? Let me give you one of the most profound theological sentences in English. Right? This explains so much about the workings of God. I do 
not know. It doesn't say. Ezra probably doesn't know when he's writing this. We don't know. Why did God call people to obey? They obeyed him and then he did not protect them and he did not allow them to do what he had commanded them to do. Why did he wait 17 years? I don't know. But it is a reality. I so appreciate that the scriptures are honest. That they don't whitewash the life of obedience. They don't make it sound like it's all roses and unicorns and God commands us and we obey and oh, it's just so wonderful. Okay, brothers and sisters, listen. This is important. If you've been on your phone, hop up here for a second, right? There is no promise of success in the scriptures for obedience. Do you hear me? There is no promise of success in the scriptures for obedience. You are not promised. When God commands you, you are not promised that it will work. You are not promised that you will get the results you expect. You are not promised that what you think is going to happen will happen. What you are promised is blessing. There is a promise of blessing for obedience, not success. And God gets to decide the blessing. Remember we were talking to Rob Weaver a couple weeks ago and I was saying to Rob, okay, Rob, you know, scripture says the Lord repays people, right? I mean, scripture says God pays back 100 to one. Anything you've given up for him, you will get back 100 to one. What are some of the ways you've seen God repay you? And Rob's first comment was, well, never in my bank account. I have never given money away and then come back and found 100 times as much money in my bank account. I've never found any more money in my bank account. That's not the promise. The promise is not you put a dollar in the offering box on the way out, you get home, there'll be a $100 bill stuck under your door. There is a promise of blessing. But God gets to decide how. God gets to decide when. God gets to decide where. And let's face it, you may never know. The car that stalls out on the, at the intersection that would have plowed into you on your drive home, you will never know. You will never know that God blessed you by turning a car off in the morning as his owner you know, cursed it and smacked it, and then you drove by and it started back up again. There is no promise of success for obedience. There is a promise of blessing. These guys, they do not succeed now. They will. We'll see it. We're going to look at it over the next several weeks. But it will be decades before they are finally able to obey God. Why did he call them to do this now? I don't know. It doesn't tell us. But he clearly did. I mean, how many times does Ezra tell us the Lord did this, the Lord moved in the hearts, go rebuild the temple, go rebuild the temple, go rebuild the temple. They went to rebuild the temple. They built the altar. They did the sacrifice. I don't know. I can't tell you why. And the Lord does not feel the need to explain himself. Like if you're hoping that God is going to say, oh, well, you know, Jeff, here's why these things happen. He, he, he does not feel the need to explain to his servants all the decisions that he makes, all that he commands them. That, that's his business. You may. He may tell you. Sometimes he does. 
But there's no promise of that in the Bible either. There's no promise of success when you obey, but there is a promise of blessing. We do not obey because we think, oh yeah, I want that. Oh, that's good. God says, rebuild the temple, and we say, oh, that's a really good idea. I'll go do that. I'm sure it'll happen right away. We obey because we are the people who say, Jesus is Lord. That's what it means to be his follower. If you are a Christian, then that is what you say. That is what distinguishes us from the rest of the planet. We say, Jesus is Lord. In their world, what you said was, Caesar is Lord. Which is why the Romans start to get really unhappy with the Christians as time goes on. The Christians say, Jesus is Lord. And remember what Jesus said about that himself. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? We say Jesus is Lord, so we do what he says. Even when it gets thwarted, even when we're weeping, because it doesn't go all that well, it doesn't turn out like we had hoped, we obey because he is Lord, and we do what he says. And hey, we obey because there is a promise of blessing. You know, Hebrews says, if you wanna please God, you have to believe two things. The first thing is you have to believe that he's there. Yeah, makes perfect sense, doesn't it? You have to believe he exists. If you didn't think there was a God, of course, but you're not gonna come and do what he says. The second thing the writer of Hebrews says you need is you need to believe that he rewards people that seek him. You absolutely should be obeying because you expect to get rewarded. You expect God to keep his promise to bless you because he will, but you don't get to decide when and you don't get to decide where and you don't get to decide how and you may never know. Maybe we'll know in eternity, I don't know. That is not promised either. But you absolutely can obey and hang on to that promise from God of blessing. But there is no guarantee of success. When I stand up here and tell you, hey, this is what the scripture says, you need to do this, is you, you read it and you think, oh, wow, this is what the scripture says, I need to do this, is God's spirit speaks to you or someone says something to you and you're like, yeah, right, I need to do that. You're right, you need to do that. <laughs> you need to obey, but obedience costs. It is not free and there is absolutely no guarantee that what you are doing will succeed. There is a promise that the Lord will one day somehow bless you. So I'm gonna pray for us. I'm gonna ask God's spirit to speak to us. As we start out looking, we know what their obedience is supposed to be. They're supposed to rebuild the temple, but they have been shut down. And we're gonna watch what happens in that process. Is there any place that you should be obeying and you're not? Is there any place where you know, oh yeah, God wants me to do that but I'm not doing it. Or God doesn't want me to do that, but I'm doing it. Or I'm thinking about doing this, but I know God wouldn't want me to do that. Is there any place where you're not obeying? Because you need to obey. You need to obey because Jesus is Lord. And heck, you ought to obey because God promises he's gonna bless you. But we don't obey because we think, oh, I'll do it and God's a vending machine. I'll put in my obedience and I'll get out what I want. It doesn't work that way. You can get a Snickers bar that way. You can put in your couple bucks and you press D2 and a Snickers bar is gonna come out. It doesn't work like that with God. He will absolutely bless you, but he will decide. So pray with me. Uh, Jesus, thank you. Gosh, thank you again that when you had people write scripture, they told the truth. They didn't sugarcoat it. They didn't whitewash it. 
They didn't make it out to be more than it was. Yes, some people were really excited about laying the foundation. Wow, lots of people weren't. It wasn't that great. It wasn't that great compared to what they had seen before. And then the government shuts them down. There's nothing they can do about it. They are stopped for 17 years. Thank you so much that, that when you write the story, you write the truth. This is what life is like in a fallen world. This is what it means for us to obey you in a world that does not obey you. You do not guarantee that we will succeed. You do not guarantee that our obedience will result in joy, that it will be good and everyone will be excited. Sometimes it won't. Sometimes we will just be shut down. Sometimes we will weep. It won't go as we expected. It won't be nearly as good as we hoped. All of these hopes and dreams, you command us, we obey, we hope and dream for good, and it doesn't happen. Thank you, Jesus, that the scriptures are honest. Now, Lord, strengthen us. You, scripture says you are a man acquainted with sorrow. You understand grief. You had disappointments. Scripture says you learned obedience through what you suffered. You understand how hard this is, how hard it is to do what is right, to obey you, and then to have it collapse. Oh, Lord, please be gracious to us. I pray for my brothers and my sisters. I pray for anyone here who is not obeying, that, that they know what you are calling them to do or not do. They, they know what you desire. They know what is right in your eyes, but they're not doing it because of the cost. They're not doing it because they don't want to pay. They're not doing it because they know that it could turn out poorly. They're not doing it because they fear it might not work out. Jesus, be gracious to us. Give us strength. Holy Spirit, be at work in us. Make us people who obey because you are Lord, not because you promise that it will succeed. Remind us, Holy Spirit, you do not promise success. You promise blessing. Somehow, somewhere, some way, you decide, not us. Lord Jesus, you know how hard this is for us. You know how hard it is for us to be steadfast. You know how hard it is for us to endure in the face of opposition. Help us to be people who obey, whatever the cost, because we know you have promised you will make it up to us one day. You have promised that what you will, will be done. Your desires will be accomplished. Jesus, help us to be people who obey you. We pray this in your name because we need you to do it in us. So in the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen. <laughs>